Hello, this is Father John Arthur Orr, Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 46th installment on Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, the 133 presentations prepared by Pope John Paul II for the years 1979 through 1984. We are indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we are using. The Heart Under Suspicion, Masters of Suspicion. For a long time now, our Wednesday reflections have centered on the following statement of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her toward her in his heart. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. We have just clarified that these words cannot be understood or interpreted in a Manichaean key. See Theology of the Body 44.5 through 45.5. In no way do they contain a condemnation of the body and of sexuality. They only contain a call to overcome the threefold concupiscence, and in particular the concupiscence of the flesh a call that springs precisely from the affirmation of the personal dignity of the body and of sexuality, and only confirms this affirmation. Clarifying this formulation, that is, determining the proper meaning of the words of the Sermon on the Mount in which Christ appeals to the human heart, see Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, it is important not only because of deep-seated habits that stem from Manichaeanism in the way of thinking and evaluating things, but also because of some contemporary positions that interpret the meaning of man and of morality. Ricoeur has called Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche masters of suspicion, a matte du soupçon, having in mind the whole system each one represents, and perhaps above all the hidden basis and the orientation of each in understanding and interpreting the humanum itself it seems necessary to take at least a brief look at this basis and orientation we should do so to discover on the one hand a significant convergence with and on the other hand also a fundamental divergence from the hermeneutics that has its source in the bible and that we are attempting to express in our analyses. In what does the convergence consist? It consists in the fact that the thinkers mentioned above, who have exercised and still exercise a great influence on the way of thinking and evaluating of people of our time, seem in substance also to judge and accuse the human heart. Even more, They seem to judge and accuse it due to what biblical language, especially Johannine language, calls concupiscence, the threefold concupiscence. One could distribute the roles as follows. In Nietzschean hermeneutics, the judgment and the accusation of the human heart correspond in some way to what biblical language calls pride of life. In Marxist hermeneutics, to what it calls concupiscence of the eyes. In Freudian hermeneutics, by contrast, to what it calls concupiscence of the flesh. The convergence of these conceptions 
with the hermeneutics of man based on the Bible consists in the fact that when we uncovered the threefold concupiscence in the human heart, we too could have limited ourselves to putting this heart in a state of continual suspicion. Yet the Bible does not allow us to stop here. Although Christ's words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28 show the whole reality of desire and concupiscence, they do not allow us to turn such concupiscence into the absolute principle of anthropology and ethics, or into the very nucleus of the hermeneutics of man. In the Bible, the threefold concupiscence does not constitute the fundamental and certainly not the only and absolute criterion of anthropology and ethics, although it is without doubt an important coefficient for understanding man, his actions, and their moral value. Also, the analyses we have carried out so far show this. Precisely when we wish to arrive at a complete interpretation of Christ's words about the man who looks with concupiscence, see Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, we cannot rest content with just any concept of concupiscence, even if the fullness of psychological truth accessible to us were reached in this way. We must rather draw on the first letter of St. John, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, and on the theology of concupiscence contained there. The man who looks to desire is, in fact, the man of the threefold concupiscence. He is the man of concupiscence of the flesh. This is why he can look in this way and should even be aware that when he leaves this interior act, at the mercy of the forces of nature, he cannot avoid the influence of the concupiscence of the flesh. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, Christ speaks about this as well and calls attention to it. His words refer not only to the concrete act of concupiscence, but indirectly also to the man of concupiscence, essential divergence. Why is it that these words of the Sermon on the Mount, despite the convergence between what they say to the human heart and what is expressed in the hermeneutics of the masters of suspicion, cannot be considered the basis of the hermeneutics just mentioned or one analogous to it. Why is it that they constitute an expression, a configuration of an ethos that is totally different, different not only from the Manichaean, but also from the Freudian ethos. I think that the whole of the analyses and reflections carried out so far answers this question. Summing up, one can say in brief that Christ's words, according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, do not allow us to stop at the accusation of the human heart and to cast it into a state of continual suspicion but that they must be understood and interpreted as an appeal addressed to the heart. This derives from the very nature of the ethos of redemption. On the foundation of that mystery, which St. Paul defines as redemption of the body, Romans chapter 8, verse 23, on the foundation of the reality called redemption, and as a consequence on the foundation of the ethos of the redemption of the body, 
We cannot stop at the mere accusation of the human heart on the basis of the desire and concupiscence of the flesh. Man cannot stop at casting the heart into a state of continual and irreversible suspicion due to the manifestations of the concupiscence of the flesh and of the libido uncovered, among other things, by a psychoanalyst through analyses of the unconscious. Redemption is a truth, a reality, in the name of which man must feel himself called and called with effectiveness. He must become aware of this call, also through Christ's words, according to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Reread in the full context of the revelation of the body, man must feel himself called to rediscover, or even better, to realize the spousal meaning of the body and to express in this way the interior freedom of the gift, that is, the freedom of that spiritual state and power that derive from mastery over the concupiscence of the flesh. Man is called to this rediscovery by the word of the gospel, and so from outside, but at the same time he is also called from the inside, the words of Christ, who in the Sermon of, on the Mount appeals to the heart, lead the listener in some way to such an inner call. If he allows them to work in him, he can, at the same time, hear in his innermost being the echo, as it were, of that beginning, of that good beginning, to which Christ appealed on another occasion to remind his listeners who man is, who woman is, and who they are, reciprocally, one for the other in the work of creation. Christ's words, spoken in the Sermon on the Mount, are not a call hurled into emptiness. They do not address the man who is completely bound by the concupiscence of the flesh, unable to seek another form of reciprocal relations in the sphere of the perennial attraction that has accompanied the history of man and woman from the beginning. The words of Christ testify that the original power, and thus also the grace, of the mystery of creation becomes for each one of them the power that is the grace of the mystery of redemption. This concerns the very nature, the very substrate of the humanity of the person, the deepest impulses of the heart. Does man not sense, together with concupiscence, a deep need to preserve the dignity of the reciprocal relations that find their expression in the body thanks to its masculinity and femininity? Does he not feel the need to impregnate them with everything that is noble and beautiful? Does he not feel the need to confer on them the supreme value, which is love? Rereading this appeal contained in Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount cannot be an act detached from the context of concrete existence. It always signifies, even if only in the dimension of the act, to which it refers the rediscovery of the meaning of the whole of existence, of the meaning of life, which includes also the meaning of the body that we have called spousal here. The meaning of the body is in some way the antithesis of Freudian libido. The meaning of life is the antithesis of the hermeneutics of suspicion. Such a hermeneutics is 
very different. It is radically different from the one we discover in Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount. These words bring to light not only another ethos, but also another vision of man's possibilities. It is important that precisely in his heart, he does not feel himself irrevocably accused and given up to the concupiscence of the flesh, but that in the same heart he feels himself called with energy, called precisely to the supreme value, which is love, called as a person in the truth of his humanity, and thus also in the truth of his masculinity and femininity, and in the truth of his body, called in that truth which has been his inheritance of the beginning, the inheritance of his heart, which is deeper than the sinfulness inherited, deeper than the threefold concupiscence. Christ's words, set in the whole reality of creation and redemption, reactivate that deepest inheritance and give it real power in human life. And with these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, concluded his 46th catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. In order to better appreciate this 46th catechesis of our Holy Father, it is important for us to remember where we've been so we know where we're going. The first part of John Paul II's Theology of the Body focuses on the words of Christ. Chapter 1 focuses on Christ's appeal to the beginning when asked about divorce and remarriage. The Lord responded, It was not that way in the beginning. It was because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses permitted the bill of divorce. In the beginning, God created the male and female. So we see from the beginning and Christ's appeal to the beginning the original unity of man and woman, the original goodness of creation, the original justice and the communion of persons ruptured by sin, original sin, the fall. Chapter 2 has Christ appealing to the human heart. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. I say, whoever looks with a disordered desire upon the other has already committed adultery in the heart. That's the chapter we're in now. We're in the fourth part of that chapter, the heart accused or called. And we've heard John Paul II address the question, a condemnation of the body. No, it's not a condemnation of the body. Christ came to redeem us, body and soul. Manichaeanism, a Gnostic, dualistic heresy, opposing matter and spirit, body and soul. The Manichaeans were against corporality, the body, but we are not Manichaeans. God created the heavens and the earth and all that is therein. He saw what he had made, and it was good. If matter is so bad, why did God create so much of it? If matter is so bad, why did God become man like us in all things but sin to save us from our sins? The correct understanding Pope John Paul addressed in the 45th Catechesis. In this Catechesis, which we have just heard, the Holy Father is addressing a further question, the heart under suspicion? And he does so, he addresses that question with two focuses, masters of suspicion and essential divergence. So that's our roadmap. Who are these masters of suspicion? He identifies them. Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche. Freud, a psychoanalyst. Marx, a political revolutionary. Nietzsche, a philosopher. The philosopher Rocor tied these three men together as masters of suspicion. Freud is said to have the hermeneutics which are correlated to the concupiscence of the flesh. 
with his focus or fixation on sexuality. Marx's hermeneutics, or interpretive key, said to be related to the concupiscence of the eyes, when we see the riches others have, and we deprive them of them, before there is theft, there is the coveting of your neighbor's goods. You covet your neighbor's goods having observed them. Look at that fancy car they have. Look at those fancy clothes they have. Look at that fancy house they have. And then we take their fancy cars, homes, clothes. Revolution. The Nietzschean hermeneutics, the pride of life. I will not serve. God is dead. Now, on Good Friday, Jesus did die. But the Father did not die, and the Spirit did not die. And the eternal person of the eternal word, the eternal Son, did not die. But Jesus Christ, the human nature which God the Son had assumed, did die. And since Jesus is God, on Good Friday, God died. But what happened on the third day? He rose, body and soul. Sorry, Nietzsche. One of the jokes, they say, Nietzsche said, God is dead. God said, Nietzsche is dead. But Nietzsche will get his body back in the resurrection, and we pray for mercy from God for him and for ourselves. And for these other two, how much mischief has entered the world through Freudian psychoanalysis. If everything is reducible to sexual urges, it would be a truncated existence. How many people misled by class warfare, perpetual revolution, Marxism. These thinkers whom Ricoeur and John Paul II identify as masters of suspicion, they present views of man and views of morality which are contrary to that presented by Christ the Lord in the gospel. If the three concupiscences which St. John addresses in his letter are part of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, from what has he come to redeem us, Remember the temptations that the Lord Jesus overcame in the desert when Satan tempted him. Christ has overcome the temptations of the pride of life by his humility. Christ has overcome the temptations to concupiscence of the eyes. Behold all these riches, I will give them if you worship me. And Christ the Lord rebukes the devil by saying, There is one God, him alone shall you serve. Christ the Lord came and overcame the concupiscence of the flesh. He who tells us to be pure of heart is pure of heart himself, like his blessed mother, and as is possible for us by his grace. It's very interesting to see the correlation made by Pope John Paul II and these other figures who have their place in the history of the human race. Jesus Christ, likewise, is a part of the history of the human race. And even before Freud or Marx or Nietzsche, Ricoeur wrote, Jesus Christ wrote in the sand, and he wrote on the human heart. And he faced a hermeneutic of suspicion from Pontius Pilate. Quod est veritas, what is truth? And he who is the way, the truth, and the life said nothing, for he recognized that the truth would not be received. Pope John Paul II, in this 46th Catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, addresses the hermeneutics of suspicion, and he contrasts it with the hermeneutics that has its source in the Bible, sacred scripture, which says, Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything else is from the evil one. Sacred scripture, which says, You shall not bear false witness. 
sacred scripture which says of Jesus Christ that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The hermeneutics which has its source in the Bible and sacred scripture is different, is better, than the hermeneutics of suspicion which has Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche as poster boys, if you will. There are those who would be relativists who would say there is no such thing as truth, although when they say that, they do so as a truth claim and therefore they undercut their argument, but they're around us nonetheless. The followers of Jesus Christ are not relativists, and rational people are not relativists. We can know the truth, and as Scripture reminds us, the truth will set us free. Are there things we do not understand fully in this life? Surely, but with God's help, with the sure and certain teaching of Mother Church, with sacred Scripture, we have a very good road map. Remember, it was the devil who introduced the hermeneutics of suspicion. What did God really say to you back in the garden, in the beginning? And John Paul II addressed the beginning in the first chapter of the first part of the theology of the body. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation, how to interpret. In the theology of the body, John Paul II is attempting to interpret the words of Jesus Christ concerning the human body. Made in the image of God, the human being is redeemed by the blood of Jesus. John Paul II is attempting in his theology of the body to interpret the meaning of man, the meaning of morality. And he's not the first to do this, and please God, he won't be the last. But his is a very privileged interpretation, since he is the successor to St. Peter, to whom Christ entrusted the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind and to loose on earth and in heaven. The Second Vatican Council attempted to interpret the meaning of man and morality in its pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, Gaudium et Spes. The 22nd article of that pastoral constitution was a favorite of John Paul II's, and he may well have had a hand in its writing. Jesus Christ has come to reveal not only God to us, but us to ourselves. The council interpreted the meaning of man and morality and John Paul II, as the Cardinal Archbishop of Krakow, was a council father. In this 46th Catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, John Paul II does not only speak about these masters of suspicion and their hermeneutic of suspicion, he also still speaks about concupiscence and how it is not the absolute principle of anthropology, ethics, or the very nucleus of the hermeneutics of man. Concupiscence is part of the reality. The fall is reality, but it's not the only reality. The redemption is part of reality. Christ has died and raised on the third day. This is reality no less than the fall. Concupiscence is the tendency to do evil, a tendency to sin. John Paul has reminded us that St. John speaks of a concupiscence of the eyes, a concupiscence of the flesh, and the pride of life following St. John's first letter. But the answer to the tendency to sin is God's grace, God's call to holiness, which was renewed by John Paul II and which I renew today. In the Bible, the threefold concupiscence does not constitute the fundamental and certainly not the only and absolute criterion of anthropology and ethics. And so some commentators have been accused of discarding 
concupiscence in their presentations on the theology of the body. They would be basing it on this 46th catechesis, perhaps. Concupiscence isn't the only criterion, isn't the absolute criterion, isn't the fundamental criterion of anthropology and ethics. Concupiscence is not the absolute principle of anthropology or ethics. And so if one would run with that and disregard all which had been said before, you could see how one would discard the significance of that tendency to sin, which is a consequence of original sin. But the Holy Father continues that concupiscence is without a doubt an important coefficient for understanding man. That is, without it, it's difficult to understand man, but it's not all that there is to us. Let's not forget we were made well. Let's not forget we have been redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Concupiscence helps us to understand the actions of man and the moral value of our actions. What evil we have avoided. What good we have done. Pope John Paul II presents in this 46th Catechesis St. Paul's doctrine on the redemption of the body. He cites Romans chapter 8, verse 23. He speaks of the ethos of redemption, and he did this also in the previous catechesis, 45. The redemption is a truth. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christians should not act as if Christ has not redeemed us. That being said, we need to live accordingly. We need to live as redeemed people, and redeemed people spurn sin. The followers of Christ reject Satan and all his empty promises and all the seduction or glamour of evil. And to look with covetousness upon another is evil. That's anti-redemption. That is what Christ came to redeem us from in part. There are other sins. Remember, the Decalogue has ten points. Even if the sixth and ninth call us to purity of heart, there are still eight other commandments which call us to holiness. If you love me keep my commandments. The love of God is this, to keep the commandments. We can only keep the commandments thanks to the grace of God. The grace of Christ won at the price of his blood on Calvary's height. That's the ethos of redemption. The fall is a truth. Redemption is a truth. Creation is a truth. There are many truths, but there is only one Lord Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. In him we live and move and have our being. Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount echo in our hearts the beginning to which he appeals elsewhere, reminding us of who we are, who man is, who woman is, and who they are reciprocally, who they are for each other. Again, here we can hear the echo of Gaudium et Spes 22. Christ reveals God to us and us to ourselves. The Pope highlights here the consistency of Christ. Elsewhere he appeals to the beginning, here he calls us to holiness by purity of heart. Who man and woman are reciprocally for each other. It's not just equipped to say Adam and Eve, that's part of Revelation, even as Adam and Steve is not. The words of Christ do not address the man who is completely bound by the concupiscence of the flesh. How to take that from Pope John Paul II? Is he saying that there are those who are so bound up in the concupiscence of the flesh that Christ does not address them? No. For Christ addresses all. He calls all to holiness. 
The words of Christ do not address the man who is completely bound by the concupiscence of the flesh. Christ frees us. For freedom we have been set free. The truth will set us free, and Christ is the truth incarnate. And with his words, with his call, which is an effective call, a powerful call, a grace-filled call, he breaks the bonds that hold us bound. He shatters that tendency to do evil in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, in our desires. That is part of the ethos of redemption. The words of Christ address the meaning the meaning of the whole of existence, the meaning of life, the meaning of the body. He is our interpretive key. Christ is the linchpin of a realistic hermeneutic, an interpretation of reality. Until next time, God bless you.